This is A Word Fitly Spoken. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Extra special guest today, the Reverend David Apple from Paducah, Kentucky. How's it going, guys? Well, I feel extra special after that introduction. Thanks, Willie. It's going well. Right. You know, we're happy to have you here. And, uh, you know, serving in the great Commonwealth, always a pleasure uh, to have you here. Absolutely. You keep bringing up Kentucky. and I, I mean, I get it. I get it. But it's just, yeah, it is what it is. I don't is. think you do get it, Zelwyn. Until I don't you, think you get it. Because until you've <laughs> lived here, you don't get it. You, you and your four trees can never understand, you know, what we, what hey. we got. At least I can see my dog run away for a week. So, <laughs> Fair enough. Always look at the bright side. That's your people's way. <laughs> Everybody doing well? Good. All right. We're here today to talk about... <laughs> Boom. And then it's just done. Everybody's jabbing each other and then we come back. We That's go. how we do it. All right. So we're here today to talk about wisdom literature as a genre. A generalized discussion of this. Now... David, why don't you give us a quick rundown of what exactly is uh, wisdom literature? To to actually define it is actually part of the difficulty, I think. But if we're talking about wisdom literature, especially in the scriptures, we could just speak very generally and say these are particular books, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Proverbs usually comes to mind for most of our listeners immediately when you think of wisdom. But uh, this is a genre that goes beyond just scriptural books. There is a biblical wisdom that's taught in those books that I mentioned, but what we're talking about is kind of the, let me see if I can give just a very broad definition, okay, and then we can kind of go back and forth about uh, what that means, but it's how to live your life fitting in with God's order of the world, if I can put it that way. All right, and so who would the principal authors of a typical wisdom literature document? Who would be the, a typical author? I think a lot of people are going to go, when you think of wisdom, philosophy comes closely in line with that. And I think I just am going to assume here that most people are thinking like I am, which is usually the way that I operate, right? Is that you're thinking <laughs> of like a Greek author. So maybe Aristotle, maybe Plato, even if you haven't read these guys, you're thinking, okay, this is a Greek, you know, this is what their culture is known for, or at least in part known for. There's other things that aren't so good that come from the Greek world, but philosophy and interest in an interest in wisdom. Sure. So it even reaches farther back, yeah. Egypt, yeah. Um, those kingdoms, that sort of thing. But in general, these are going to be statements or at least sayings from wise men or what the uh, the culture would consider wise men. Right. So in a biblical context, what would a, a wise man look like? I don't really want to say sage, but we'll stick with wise man. Yeah, uh, sage, wise man, I, it depends on what translation you read, right? But those those that word sage does actually get translated, I think, in some of our sure, yeah. uh, English translations, in, especially in Proverbs. But especially King Solomon comes to mind. Most of the Proverbs are attributed to him. You get a few other figures who have a few sayings in Proverbs, a couple chapters worth. But Solomon is the, he's not first among equals. He is head and shoulders kind of above everyone. He's the wisest man who ever lived, according to the scriptures, right? So we've got these statements then from these wise men. And so what are they, what are they talking about? 
And how are they talking? Sure. They uh, oftentimes they speak in parabolic or kind of in riddles. They speak in metaphors and analogies and, and they're speaking about, well, I, I think that's part of what we want to talk about is w- what is really the subject of wisdom. They're speaking about how to live your life how to, I, I said before, kind of fitting in in the world, but what is the wise way of operating in the world? And and it doesn't get into kind of specific laws. You know, we have in our catechism, we've got the table of duties, which kind of clearly speaks directly to, okay, what does a husband owe his wife? And what does the wife owe the husband? And what does the preacher owe the hearers? Okay. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament is more general, more broad, it's addressing kind of everyone in in various stations of life, and they're trying to kind of perceive what is God's order for, for all things and then where they fit in to that order. So are we talking just specifically biblically or are we talking generally when you define yeah, it? I think way? there's overlap there. I mean, the, Willie mentioned that this is this genre is not unique to the Greeks or to the Israelites. Okay, so this is Egyptian. There's, there's mention of the wise men of King Nebuchadnezzar. So this is not a, this is not unique to the Bible, although in the scriptures you have this desire for wisdom that is sanctified or cleansed from any of its kind of pagan undertones and is clarified then by Solomon or whoever else is is speaking in the Proverbs. Sure. I mean, because I, I can think of like, if you want to use the example of Egyptian, Amenhotep is one of these uh, wise men who, who leaves us uh, literature from the Middle Kingdom. When you read his work, though, you have this sense of wisdom being like, this is just the best thing that I should do that, you know, that I'm personally doing. Like, you know, the Egyptians emphasize things like silence, like, you know, uh, a, a man shouldn't talk too much. And so it more becomes about just being, I don't, I don't know if you even want to call it strictly moralistic, but I can definitely see within the biblical wisdom literature, a much clearer definition of what it means to be holy. Would you say that that's was that is that fair? Yeah, I think that that's a good that's a good distinction to make because the the biblical view of wisdom is not just like how do I fit in with when I'm relating to my neighbors. Okay? I mean that would be common to to any culture. And this is why there's always an interest and this is I think part of why we can see an overlap with Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek writers is that people whether you're uh, whether you believe in the Lord or not, there is this interest in what is the well-lived life or the way that I've often heard Aristotle translated as what makes up human flourishing, okay? For the biblical writers, the real question is not just, you know, that horizontal, how do I relate with my neighbors and how do I live out, you know, a, a good life in this world? It's how do I live my whole life out before the Lord, and so this is where I'm sure we'll talk about this later. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as soon as that statement gets made, that separates biblical wisdom from kind of any other kind of wisdom. There's something unique here, and that is the fear of the Lord, how we stand before him, how we live out all of our life in his sight, in his eyes. 
Yeah, so we're not just looking for some kind of golden rule or C.S. Lewis's Tao or anything like that. We are actually looking for what it means to be uh, biblically wise. And like you said, that it has to do with the fear of the Lord, which distinguishes it from absolutely everything yeah. else. And and I think if you if you can put those, the words you use, Zelwyn, are good. What does it mean to be holy as compared to just being living out a moral life? When you read Aristotle, his ethics, this is a lot of times Proverbs gets viewed as kind of just a, a book about you know, various sayings. It's hard to, hard to read the whole thing in a, as a unified book. But when people try to, they say, well, maybe this is just relating to various sayings on ethics. Well, Aristotle tries to draw all of his ethics into conformity to human reason or logic, right? So we want logic to pervade all of our thoughts and all of our actions. If we're Greeks, okay, or if we're disciples of Aristotle, we're not disciples of Aristotle. As Christians, we have a higher Lord and a higher master. And so our life is not governed by purely human reason and logic, but it's, like I said before, just lived out before the Lord. And so holiness as compared to ethics is, I think, a better category in which to view most of, of biblical wisdom. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very important distinction. We tend to, when we talk about holiness today, think of, well, a holy person is the one who merely follows all of these rules. But really, holiness at its root is submission to God and walking in his ways. And while that sounds similar to just simply following a list of ethics, it's actually much more than that, much more profound than that. It is it is listening to God. It is receiving what God would give. And it is, to be sure, doing as God would tell us to do, but it's living that life in sacrifice to God and with God. Maybe you could even say it's not living within parameters, like you say, like here's the boundaries of what it means to be ethical, but we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are actually becoming uh, like God. Sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and that's a biblical way to put it. So you win. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, what, that's what I was aiming for. So put it, go ahead. Put it back yeah. into the, the whole wisdom genre here, right? So who is the wise one? Who is the sage? That's Paul's language, right? Ultimately, what Paul says is Christ is our wisdom, right, Zelwyn? And so if he is the embodiment of wisdom and his teaching then is true wisdom, what does it look like for us to be wise? Well, it looks like conformity to to him, to that standard, to his teaching, and to share then in his in his wise thoughts, to share in his wise actions. I mean, the wisdom literature of of Solomon, say in Proverbs, for example, one of the things that I notice when I read it is that it doesn't deal a lot with, you know, if you say, I, I'm going to be a student of philosophy, I'm going to be a philosophy major in college. Well, Okay, great. So you're going to kind of operate in a purely intellectual world. That's that's oftentimes the thought. Well, Proverbs doesn't deal a whole lot in sort of abstract thinking. It's much more about what do you do in this situation or how do you handle this particular thing? It's very much practical wisdom as opposed to speculative wisdom, if I can put it that way. And it's also interesting, the pagan wisdom literature, how it really differs uh, you do have maxims and things similar to what you see in Proverbs, but you also have a lot more esoterica 
within pagan wisdom literature. And why do you guys think that might be? Does that shed some light on the goal of pagan wisdom? Well, I think it, I think it relates to the difference between having a special revelation as opposed to trying to perceive into and peer into the mystery of, of non-revelation, if that makes sense, Willie. Do you, do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's these means by, by which we attain this knowledge or a desired result. It's kind of a way to cope with an uncertain future for them. There's a lot of fatalism within the pagan worldview in some ways and among some pagans. And yet, how do I, how do I have control over anything? Well, there are multiple gods and ultimately it's about appeasing them or finding a way to get them to do what I want or give me what I want. And trying to see like, okay, so like astrology, right? If I'm going to look at the pattern of the stars, because a lot of times the, I'm thinking especially in like King Nebuchadnezzar's court, right? His, the wise men are oftentimes also astrologers. So they're the ones who have looked into the heavens and seen in the stars some kind of, some kind of hidden order to things. And they understand then, you know, I don't know if they had the same kind of zodiac calendar that we do, but they've understood in the stars, this is the thought anyways, what is going to happen. And then they, conform their life to that unchangeable, you know, future that is told to us in the stars. Well, that's, that's kind of pure speculation, right? And compare that with biblical wisdom, which is a revealed wisdom. It's a God-given wisdom, and it's a, a wisdom that is recorded, you know, through Solomon or through the various other kings or whoever these wise men are, but it's written down to be taught and learned by people in these schools of wisdom. Right. So the foundation for Christian wisdom then is going to be God as he has revealed himself. So we talked a little bit about that. So holiness is conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. Wisdom informs holiness. So that really begins to get at the heart of our discussion here, the purpose of wisdom and the value of it. Now, what would be the value of holiness for the Christian? Yeah. If, if we look at, I think it'd be good at this point to look at at King Solomon himself, because I think there's, it, it depends on what your station is. It depends on who you are. For example, Solomon in first Kings or in second Chronicles, you can read this too. You have this account of the Lord coming to him in a, I think it's a dream. It may be a vision, but those two are overlapping categories, right? And God says to him, you know, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, well, you know, I'm this young man and I'm supposed to be the ruler over your people, O oh Lord, and you know that I'm insufficient to the task. So give me a heart of wisdom so that I can rule your people properly, right? So the, the concern for wisdom is not puffing oneself up, right? Oh, look how smart I am, or I have this unique gift, this unique ability, but it's meant for the actual ordering, at least for Solomon, for the ruling of his kingdom, for the ordering of the people God has put underneath him. All right. So there's one result. There could be, now that's the result of heeding wisdom. Obviously, when God's wisdom is ignored, it can lead to all sorts of calamity, all the way up to the falling of a kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at Proverbs, just the first couple of chapters of Proverbs, you've got, it's often couched in a father addressing his son. And he's warning him about 
what will happen to you if you if you ignore my wisdom uh, you're going to pursue folly and you're going to fall into all kinds of other problems usually it seems to be tied to you're going to fall in with some kind of adulterous woman right well that was solomon's achilles yeah. hill yeah he learned this from experience no. his achilles heel is 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 women and it brings him down that's the achilles heel of many a biblical hero that's why a lot of a lot of the proverbs deal with this one of my friends uh, brought this saying to my attention. I hadn't heard it before, but I think it's a common saying. The, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? And I think a lot of the Proverbs operate in that domain. Look, avoid these things because if you pursue them, here's what's going to happen to you. Right. Blessed is the man who walks not in the council. Because what will happen to him, he's right. going to be blown away in the judgment. <laughs> but but a lot of – and so that's kind of an eschatological vision, but there's also the present dangers of, look, if you do this, here's what's going to happen to you. And that's going to be, you know, that's going to be bad for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, people, and people kind of bristle at that a little bit, you know, this idea of avoidance or, or abstinence or something like that. And yet it does even stripping away any discussion of uh, spirituality or sanctification or anything like that. It objectively does keep you out of trouble. If you don't do X, why will not happen in general? And we can see that time and time again. You don't want to get pregnant, be abstinent. It, it really is that simple in a lot of ways. I mean, it's just at a certain very fundamental level, wisdom uh, you know, speaks to all of life at all times and in all places. Uh, there are certain things that are just universally true. And surely if God has revealed this wisdom to us, it's without question universally true. And even if we can strip it away and just look at it that way, it's good advice, <laughs> you know, I mean, just to put kind of a poor spin on it. And yet, even the Christian who would say, even the Christian who would acknowledge that this comes from God, there's there are, there are those who would say, well, I, I don't really like to read the Bible yeah. that way. Well, and that, that shows kind of a deficiency, right, in just thinking about taking someone else's advice, right? If, if the creator of the universe gives you advice, he, he kind of knows what's best, right? People say this a lot. They say things like, well, I guess God knew what was best. And it's like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> right? I, I think it's interesting that Job uh, is numbered among the books of wisdom. And Job is quite possibly the oldest book in the scriptures. And the story of Job is a righteous man who heeds God's every word, doesn't curse God, and yet does receive a rebuke at the end when he would question God's counsel or God's wisdom. And that's very telling. Yeah. Ancient book. And, and and here is Job, who is far and away better Christians than anybody else. And he's going to say, he's going to presume to know better than God or presume to question God's wisdom. And God answers him, in a very clear and unmistakable way. I had an interesting question from my confirmation kids a couple months ago. I think I talked with you guys about this before, but they said, well, pastor, don't you think that we're smarter than the disciples? I, I looked at them and I was like, no, of course not. And they said, well, but... None of you well, fish. That's what I was saying, but to them, <laughs> uh, intelligence equals wisdom, okay? And for them, intelligence equals kind of scientific knowledge, right? And so for all the progress in scientific knowledge, like you're pointing out here, Willie, the, this ancient book of Job 
it doesn't necessarily advance our scientific knowledge of anything, but there's a deeper wisdom uh, and a much more important wisdom than being able to, you know, have the periodic table of elements or something in knowing when to keep silent before the Lord and how to accept his judgments and accept his, what he's given to us. Very good. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, and Reverend David Appled here talking about wisdom literature. One of the most uh, significant discussions of wisdom is in contrast to folly. You, you see that theme uh, thread a lot of wisdom literature, particularly in Proverbs 9. Wisdom versus folly. So let's talk about that for a while, guys. Zelwyn, do you want to take wisdom or do you want to take folly? <laughs> I'll let you take wisdom. I'll take folly. Okay. Okay. In Proverbs, anyways, th- this is definitely one of the big themes. We want to kind of touch on some of the themes that go through the various books, but it's definitely a theme in Proverbs. This wisdom has prepared her feast. It's all ready, and I'm pulling this from Proverbs 9, and she is inviting everyone to come in and to to dine with her to receive the benefits of her wisdom. And that's always in contrast to folly, right? And so there are, there's no real middle road, even though in the the passages that you read this, it's, there's oftentimes pictured a person walking down the street and he can either turn into wisdom or he can turn into the house of folly. But there is no neutral ground because the person is going to go one of those two ways. And so this brings the whole two ways. You might hear this kind of spoken about maybe in Psalm 1. You've got the way of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. In the Proverbs, that's the way of wisdom versus the way of folly. And the way of wisdom gives insight. It gives gives the proper kind of cautions. We talked about that before our break quite a bit. It's oftentimes couched in cautionary terms. Don't go down this road because that's the way of folly. And folly always results in bad things, whatever those bad things might be. Yeah. And so that the two ways is the, the important point here, as, as you're emphasizing, there is absolutely no middle ground. If wisdom is to be described as a beautiful woman, folly, on the other hand, is, is pictured as an adulterous woman, a prostitute, one who is seeking to seduce someone from the right way, from following after God. And that's really the ultimate reason why we talk about these two ways, also called the ways of life and of death. I think also in the Gospels as well, uh, the, the wide way and the narrow way. I mean, so this is all the way through. But the point is, is that if if wisdom is the way of life, the way of God, then folly is anything that leads away from God. The imagery of folly as a seductive woman is important because if we are the bride of Christ, you know, if we are God's wife, 
being the church, then to go away from God is to be adulterous, is to actually leave the, the way of, that would lead towards him. And so anything that leads away from God is ultimately what we mean by folly. Yeah, and what's that going to look like? Uh, let's give some scriptural examples. Well, I mean, if, if you want to look at Proverbs 9 specifically, I mean, you have the woman, folly is loud, uh, seductive, knowing nothing. She she calls, you know, whoever's simple, turn in here, because uh, to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So she's she's specifically saying something, I mean, well, satanic. Even, you know, the serpent coming up and saying, hath God really said anything that would deliberately go against what God would set up as good and righteous because he is good and righteous. Yeah. And I think the seductive woman as sort of the personification of folly, it's tapping into this idea of a trap, right? So you're there's a trap that's laid and you wouldn't walk into it if you knew the end result. Right. So there has it has to be covered in the veneer of something attractive. The trap, I think, in in back in Proverbs one or earlier on in Proverbs anyways, it talks about no one walks into a trap if they know that the trap is set. So if I see the hunter setting up a bear trap, well, obviously, I'm not going to step in the bear trap. Right. But if I don't know that it's there, it's covered up. I'm it's likely that I'll fall right into it. And so the the point of Proverbs is oftentimes to uncover the trap, to reveal the end that comes from following after folly, and then on the on the flip side, to promote the appeal of wisdom. So this is why you get wisdom is not just described as like a decent thing, but it will be like a garland in your hair. It'll be like fine jewels around your neck. It's laid out as something that you would want to pursue so that it can stand in contrast to this seductive foolishness. So are there any limits to our processing of God's wisdom? And should we be cautious of that? Should we be cautious of presuming too much? What's a good key to uh, understanding wisdom or making sure that we are understanding God's word rightly? I, I think there are limits to wisdom, right? There are some things that God doesn't reveal. Maybe that's what you're getting at. So the example of Job is very helpful in this, but also Job and Ecclesiastes, I think are at least bookends. I don't know exactly how you want to put it, but they, they both address a similar theme. So in Ecclesiastes, we already talked about Job, but he says, even the pursuit of wisdom is folly. Right. So if you're if you pursue wisdom to become a master of wisdom, you're going to end up lacking something. Right. You're not going to achieve the that ultimate goal of being all wise and all knowing. And so that's why, again, that phrase, the common phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We could also kind of put that in as the end of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, knowing what things belong to him and what things I don't have to search out, and what things are are not told to me, not revealed to me, and therefore, if I can put it like this, aren't really my business knowing. I don't need to know those things. Sure, and I think recognizing our limits as men is very beneficial, one of the most wise things that we can affirm. When we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we become haughty, and we become puffed up, 
And we really become rather pleased with our own wisdom and our own interpretation. That's been kind of one of the follies of the professional pursuit of wisdom or academia, right? It's not fashionable to to heed the old interpretations. Everybody has to have their own niche. Everybody has to carve something else out, you know, something of their own making. And so you have all of these different interpretations now coming up. Of, for example, any one passage of the Bible, simply for the sake of everyone making a name for themselves among the uh, worldly wise men. And it's 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 interesting. I mean, it's interesting how we can accumulate so much knowledge and or so much wisdom too, and then yet end up ignorant of uh, simple and basic things. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned worldly wise men there, which I think you do it on purpose to uh, kind of hearken to Pilgrim's Progress, but that's a book that is exploring I, this. I don't do anything on purpose. I have only <laughs> a really loud whistle. I, maybe I shouldn't have named it out loud. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but that is a book that, that speaks clearly about these two ways, right? And is oftentimes illuminating or trying to illuminate through various figures in his story, the the splits in the path, right? So you're following this path of wisdom and worldly wise man comes along and he wants to kind of pull you down the path of folly or, you know, whichever figure it is who comes up. There's always these traps along the way or these, these other avenues you could follow. But, but I think that is... Uh, to go back to what you were saying before, you mentioned worldly wise men and put me off on a John Bunyan trail. This, the notion of recognizing limits, um, this is why in Ecclesiastes, it's a folly, it's a chasing after wind, it's a weariness to constantly be striving for more and more wisdom. And uh, in Ecclesiastes, anyways, the the gift of God is to not only kind of accept your limits, but to then be able to enjoy what has been given to you, right? If, if you're always pursuing more, 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 whether it's more riches, more pleasure, more wisdom, I think there's one other one in Ecclesiastes, but those are the, the pursuits that people will have. Well, that's a weariness. It's a chasing after the wind. Whereas the, the wise way is to accept your limits, to know your limits and to enjoy what has been given to you. Well, I think one should make an important distinction here, though. It's not so much, it's not vain because, you know, we, we shouldn't pursue wisdom. What he's talking about is to be thought, you know, very well of by other men. You know, this this pursuing wisdom in order to, to puff up, as, as we try to emphasize. We should pursue wisdom with all that we have because, you know, it means to be like God. But if we're just doing it to be seen by men, we already have our reward. Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out with Ecclesiastes too, the reason why all of this stuff is so vain is because we have to deal with our own ultimate limit of our mortality. All of the pursuits that we have in life ultimately come to vanity because we have to stand before the judgment seat of God because we must die. And so when we recognize that, yes, we do have to stand before God, the only thing that really is not vain then is to fear the Lord to actually seek after and to do what is truly wise. In Ecclesiastes, you get the closest answer to, is it the Westminster Catechism, Willie? What is the chief end of man? In Ecclesiastes, it answers it different than the Westminster Catechism, but it says to fear the Lord and to follow his commandments. Zelwyn, which what episode number is this, by the way? <laughs> 
<laughs> Number 18. This is episode 18 where David, where David steps on a giant <laughs> landmine. I'm just um, saying, in Ecclesiastes, it ha- it, you have a biblical answer to the end of man. Uh, Look, you can take it or leave it. I'm just saying, this is, what, this is wisdom. <laughs> Obligatory mention that we have all signed on to the Book of Concord as without material error. And <laughs> Guilty <accepted>. conscience, Willie. <laughs> I said I didn't say anything. We got we got <laughs> David McAppled over here affirming <laughs> the Westminster standards. No, oh, it's, <laughs> no, it's but point well taken though. You know, all things to the glory of God. You know, knowledge of God or wisdom being found first and only ultimately in God. So it is it is very important and we shouldn't be afraid of words like glory or sovereign or these sorts of things. If just because someone in error uses it, the Mormons use Father, Son and Holy Ghost and I'm not giving up on those three names anytime soon. So we shouldn't be scared of certain words and certain things. So this has been your PSA from Word Fitly <laughs> Spoken. All right, so let's take a couple minutes then and talk about wisdom as she is personified. It's very interesting how Wisdom isn't really so much talked about as a thing as it's talked about as a person or she's talked about as a person. Is there any significance to that? I think there's two there's two ways this is done. The one is as a kind of literary device. Zelwyn, you were mentioning before in chapter nine of, of Proverbs, you have lady wisdom or sometimes it's I think is more modern, but dame wisdom versus dame folly. I don't know why that is. Maybe one of you guys knows, but lady wisdom, lady, folly. These go along with it being this kind of seductive path or an appealing path to follow, maybe to put it positively. But then there's the the one that maybe our listeners are going to be more familiar with is in Proverbs 8, where you have, it seems to be more than just a personification of wisdom, but wisdom as a wisdom incarnate maybe i'm jumping into new testament terms too far there but it's a it's not just a literary device but wisdom is a person who's speaking there in proverbs 8 what do you guys think let's read that then proverbs 8 22 to 31 so the lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old i was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was when there were no depths i was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding with water Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there, when he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, as one brought up with him, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Well, I think we should at least address the the biggest misconception here, which is that there, I'll put it this way, was there a time when he was not? That's the question. So this, this, especially that first verse, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old, this can be read to support an idea that this wisdom, which is prophetically speaking towards Christ, was a was a creature. Get out of here, Arius. Well, right. This is this was Arius's passage, right? And this is 
I don't know if the Jehovah's Witnesses use it, but this is definitely one of these passages that people would fall back on and say, well, look, it's not the Son of God isn't, if the Son of God is the wisdom of God, he's not eternal because look, uh, he was brought forth. And so how could an eternal being be brought forth? To which we would respond and say, well, before the earth was, there was no time, right? And so this is speaking of an eternal generation or an eternal begetting of wisdom. And so wisdom has always been there with, I guess, if we use the Trinitarian term, wisdom has always been there beside the Father. This comes out in John 1 as well. The word of the Lord, by whom all things were made and through whom all things were made. Well, that I think goes back to Proverbs 8, right? That there is this this wisdom of God who is with God and yet is at the same time a separate, distinct person from the Father. And I don't think the feminine language of Proverbs describing wisdom as a lady and our identification as wisdom with Christ is, should cause anybody to trip up. I mean, after all, you do have metaphors in the New Testament of, of God being compared to a mother hen. So just because the, the metaphor uses the language of she doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to Christ. Right. We don't have to adopt a queer hermeneutic simply because of some pronouns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so this is, in fact, Christ, who has always been from the beginning, like a master workman, to use the ESV, uh, I don't, I, what, were you, what were you quoting, Willie? The King James? The only translation that matters, correct? Yes, I know. No, no, no. And, it was good. It was, it was the King James because it's handy <laughs> and, and copyright-free in the United States. Ooh, true. <laughs> true story. We'll get into that in a different episode. But, but the fact that Christ as wisdom was there from the beginning and was there creating the world, through him were all things made, as John says, emphasizes the fact that wisdom is Christ. And to seek after wisdom is to seek Christ, who is our life and our reward. And so we should seek him and go after him as eagerly as we can, if only because that is the way of life. You know, it's it's interesting. The faith that Zelwyn describes is an active faith, and that's so significant. And that's something that we don't hear a lot of sometimes, a faith that lays hold of Christ and constantly seeks after Christ and the word of Christ and what he has taught us in his word and what he would have us to do. A faith that is living and active and bold and that has no fear, but that simply seeks to be one with Christ Jesus. Well, and this, in especially here in Proverbs 8, you can see this is a wisdom that permeates through the whole of creation, right? And so even in Natural revelation has been obviously dimmed, severely dimmed by the fall. And yet there is, for all persons, for all people, there is a, a revelation. Christ tries to speak to them through nature. And, and so you can see in the allegories, not allegories, sorry, in the parables, riddles, various things that Proverbs use, you have ants used as an analogy for being diligent. Okay, well, that seems very mundane and very simple, but uh, he's speaking to something deeper than just like, look and be like an ant, right? There is a Christological revelation in that, 
whether or not a person picks up on it or not depends a lot on whether they're, they have a regenerated mind or, or don't. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Selwyn Heidi, David Apple talking about wisdom literature. Jumping right back in, do you guys feel, think, or know that wisdom literature is neglected today? And if so, why? Big question, right, Selwyn? I I really do think this is a big question, and I think that the answer is that it is neglected. I don't know that I know all the reasons why. I I know at least maybe some reasons why, but I do think it's neglected. How about you, Zoan? Yeah, I mean, and it's not just in the way that the Bible in general is neglected, because we could always do better at reading the Bible, period. I think it's neglected maybe in the sense that for some people, it's just, I don't know how else to put it, but weird. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, in the sense of it's not our usual fare. And so because it's not our usual fare and it can be difficult to understand, and Ecclesiastes can be depressing, frankly. We tend to gravitate away from it to get to something that we're a little bit more familiar with. I mean, how would, how would you yeah. take that, David? Yeah, it's not that people are, are really, sorry to jump on you there. No, it's not that people are so much averse to wisdom, quote unquote, but it's, it's sort of where they get it from in the form that they receive it. So they'll watch a motivational speaker or something like that, and everybody loves to open up a fortune cookie. <laughs> but, but to come... <laughs> <laughs> but to come to actual wisdom literature, you know, is uh, takes takes a little more discipline, a little more uh, resolve. Secret of the Orient, man. That's, right. It's all in the cookie. <laughs> yeah, I think that the especially and it's not all bad, right? To emphasize that the the main story of the scriptures is how God is sending His Son into the world to save the world, and if that's the if that's the main point of the scriptures is then it becomes difficult to see how wisdom fits in with that right and and that is the main story of the scriptures right is to it's the story of the messiah coming into the world and then when he has come into the world to save the world but that shouldn't lead us then to say well there's no place for wisdom in that there's no place for wisdom in the old testament or in the new testament either for that matter as if those were you know totally different different things. But I think that that just in my kind of perception of things, guys, is that the 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 different genre is so, as you said, Zelwyn, weird for people that it's it seems like a you're in a foreign world and it just what's going on here? Why is this guy telling me about an ant? I keep using that example from Proverbs 6. What am I supposed to learn from an ant? What does that have to speak to me? in the 21st century or whatever. So I think this just that distance from 
distance geographically, also distance chronologically, and just kind of distance in terms of what people are are looking for when they read the Bible. Do you want to have this kind of, in so many ways, it is very practical and saying, you know, don't rebuke a scoffer. Well, we have scoffers all around us. And so it's actually helpful to have that advice given to us. But at the same time, who likes to get advice, right? I don't really like when people tell me what to do. And if that's all you can say, if you can't overcome that, then you're going to have a real hard time reading wisdom literature. And we might also have that idea of that practicality of that telling me, you know, how I should live, how I should pursue God. Maybe we also have something of a reaction. I mean, even an allergic reaction to that. Do we want God telling us what to do? Or, you know, or is that something that we would categorize as negative or even legalism? I mean, how do, how do we want to take that? Back in the first segment that we did, we talked about how hol- we compared this holiness to baseline moralism, I guess. And, and whenever someone says moralism, that's usually an, a pejorative term, right? Well, moralism is automatically bad. Ethics is automatically usually dismissed as bad. But is it really bad, right? I think in this wisdom literature, especially Proverbs, you do get a a focus on ethics. And again, I, I mentioned this before, but a view of my whole life is lived out before the Lord and not, he doesn't just see what happens in the temple, right? So he doesn't just have interest in the sacrifices, but he sees my whole life that that's lived out. And that has, that resonates with people. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it's not always attractive to read it. And it's hard to read through multiple chapters of Proverbs in a row because you just get kind of washed over with all these different parables, all these different little kind of riddles, if you will. I think it it needs to be kind of rediscovered by us because there is a lack of wisdom in the world around us. We have been talking about ethics and sort of as a, a guide a lot, but that's not to say that salvation isn't found in wisdom literature, discussion of justification, or that sort of thing. So what would wisdom literature's relation to salvation be? Well, if we talk again in those terms of the two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of folly, and as I emphasize, the Bible also calls it things like the way of life and death. To seek after wisdom is to seek that which is our greatest pursuit. I mean, to seek after salvation. And of course, God is the one who ultimately gives us wisdom. God is ultimately the one who brings us to himself. I don't think that you can say that it's only sanctification when we're reading wisdom literature, but we are talking about the very way that God is, has set us on and is calling us to go on. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, does, does that make sense? I mean, do we want to hash that out a little bit more? Well, I think, no, I think that's perfect. The the way, the earliest Christians, right, were, are called followers of the way. And so Christ as wisdom incarnate, it's not just his teaching, but his whole way of life that is emulated by Christians. So if you can keep in mind, the goal of justification is to bring a person to God, communion with God. Well, along that way, justification is certainly the the major step, if you will. I don't want to pull out a whole process here, but it's not the only thing that happens along that way. A person 
must approach the Lord in holiness. And this is part of that growing up into salvation. How does, how does it go in, in the Pauline epistles? The scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. There is a maturity that has to happen. And I think that Proverbs, wisdom in general, should be seen in that light. It's not just law kind of in the second use of the law kind of way. Well, this is meant to show me what I don't do and to make me feel guilty or to reveal my sin. This is a guide, or you can even see it in the first use. This is a curb so that I don't end up pursuing the way of folly. Well, you have two things from the New Testament. I mean, you have Hebrews, you know, without holiness, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You also have Paul emphasizing that Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Willie, but those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right. Is that right? And so you do have this striving towards something, this pushing on towards the goal, which comes as a result of our being justified through Christ. And so, yeah, I mean, this way in which we have been set on is the way of wisdom. And Christ is that wisdom which we seek. And so, yeah, I mean, I, the wisdom literature is, is permeated with, with the whole of salvation. Well, wisdom and it's and I think one of the things to see here is that Jesus's own preaching, Jesus's own teaching, we talk about him as wisdom incarnate. Paul calls him Christ is our wisdom in 1 Corinthians, but his his own teaching often speaks this way. I think that in like the Sermon on the Mount, he has this example of look at the birds who neither sow nor reap and yet they have all don't worry, your father will take care of you and the look to the lilies of the field. I mean, his his own preaching is dotted with with kind of wisdom echoes, if you will, if not straight up just kind of pulling over some stuff. And so he, he is not just concerned with the, the justification of the sinner. I mean, that is a primary concern of Christ, but he's also concerned with the way that follows after that justification for for his disciples. You also have James and some of his sayings, I mean like the the tongue being a, like a rudder or a, a fire which sets ablaze. Yeah. So you do also have this this imagery of of wisdom even in the New Testament. So it's not just limited to the Old Testament as as you said. In James there's a lot of things about the tongue, right? It is a small rudder that controls the the whole ship and it also is able to set the whole fo- forest ablaze with fire. So and maybe maybe we're reluctant to talk about that because I, I you know you don't want to be accused of moralistic preaching or moralistic teaching and yet you know you can look at your own life you can look at the life as pastors we look at the life of our congregation and you can see the damage done like you know you look back and you say well you know that's true right James is really true there is this little tongue that sets the whole forest ablaze and maybe if we had paid a little more attention to that in the beginning, we wouldn't have to go back afterwards and put out this huge fire. Well, it's interesting in all of these words of of wisdom, what is implied is is a call to repentance. I mean, these the wisdom literature is often filled with uh, admonition. Anytime you look at something like Proverbs, it's saying you should go and this is the way you should live. And oftentimes it's rather heavily implied unlike you're doing now, yeah. <laughs> you know, or in the future, mm-hmm. you may plan to be doing evil. So there's repentance is always in the background of all of this. 
And it is, the idea is to bring us to repentance in a lot of ways, really in every case here. But what is implied with repentance? Is it merely feeling guilty or feeling bad for what you've done and then saying, okay, whoops, can I have a mulligan? No, repentance implies turning from one's ways. And we continue to drift further and further from that definition to where words like repentance have no meaning. And if repentance has no meaning, then there's nothing to really repent to or toward. And if we're not repenting toward God, then we're certainly not going to heed God's knowledge because there's no repentance. There's nothing, we're not turning towards him. I know I'm kind of speaking like a politician there, but do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm getting at here? This idea that we have so taken away from what the Bible says, you know, using words, uh, which are symbols translated into sounds that have meaning. And okay, Augustine. <laughs> we have, we've just moved. I mean, it's, it's so simple, and yet we've made it so much more complicated than it needs to be. Well, I mean, the very idea of restitution uh, being so alien to our idea of repentance anymore. Now, the idea that part of repentance would mean repaying that which has been stolen, for example. It is part of the way of wisdom to to make things right. It doesn't mean that we're going to be justified by such an action, which is what I think we're always afraid of. But it does mean that to seek after the way of God is to do what is, in fact, pleasing in his sight. And that includes setting right what, as far as we are able, what has gone wrong. Yeah, restitution. I mean, that's a that's a very good point. We've lost that in, in our in our entire conception of justice, where we tend to have just sort of arbitrary punishments for things. But the Christian should understand restitution and the setting of things right better than anyone in the world, because our faith rests upon that being done through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through his active and passive obedience. It is an act of restitution, after all, not merely just just kind of like paying bail, it's actually paying the debt owed mm-hmm. and and recreating and, and setting things right where they are broken. But again, if we don't if we don't understand if we don't let the Bible speak on our own on its own terms, then we're not going to be able to fathom any of this wisdom and knowledge of God. One of the things that you see in Proverbs, especially we keep coming back to Proverbs, I, and I think that's good. I mean, that's sort of the quintessential wisdom literature. It's oftentimes my son listened to the words of my mouth, right? That's a, a common way that a saying is brought forward. And so you have a kind of fatherly speaking to a son. Okay, well, if if we kind of bring that into our language of justification, adoption has already taken place. Right. And so there already is this father son relationship there. And so, like Willie mentioned, there is repentance implied. It's not explicitly stated often in Proverbs, but it's there in the background. And so, like a father speaking to a son, the father doesn't only give like a, a word of pardon, you know, the prodigal son. Everybody loves the prodigal son, but the prodigal son is then going to be trained by his father, right? He's not just said, oh, yeah, you know, welcome back home. And if you run off again tomorrow, no big deal. There's going to be fatherly training for true sons that must be given and must be received and, and sought after. One of, one of the things I'm kind of going on a number of things here, but one of the things that comes out in Proverbs is the, the, the student has to desire it. The wisdom literature appeals to 
for the one who reads it to come after it. And then the one who reads it has to actually want to pursue that wisdom. One of the Christian desires is to know more of God and to know more of his word and to always be going deeper and deeper into that. And you can't continue to go deeper and deeper if you're only willing to read a handful of passages or only use the Bible in, in you know, one yeah. way. You know, often our devotional use of the scriptures is kind of skewed. We're sort of looking for like a magical reading, you know, like I'm going to randomly open up to a verse that's going to speak to whatever exact situation is in my life. And that's not really the discipline of taking in the scriptures. Isn't this the case? If I had it my way, I would probably, I could reread like First Timothy 1, uh, where Paul talks about chief of sinners, though I beat, that's the hymn, but God's mercy overflowed. In- <laughs> hey, if you didn't believe he was a Lutheran in the last segment, now you do. <laughs> God's mercy overflowed for Paul in faith and love. I mean, that's, that's a, and this is a trustworthy and true statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Like that, that is obviously a, um, a beautiful passage and one that people love to read because it speaks so clearly to a to a sinful heart. But you can't, like you said, Willie, you can't just kind of pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to read and want to know. The whole thing is given for our edification. And especially, I think what we're trying to get out here with the wisdom literature is this is especially important for the renewed Christian. What is the way that we should walk in? It's a good thing for the Christian to, and you don't misunderstand me from earlier, it's a good thing for the Christian to want to know a verse of the Bible or verses or passage that speaks to a certain situation. That's good and laudable. There's nothing wrong with that. But that shouldn't be the only time you pick up the Bible. It shouldn't really be the way you read it. Just a bit of practical advice. Memorize the scriptures, but don't make it into, you don't have to make it into like hard work. Read them and read them over again and then read them again. The more scripture you read, the more you take in, the more you learn. And then when you are confronted with certain situations, a struggle in your life or a setback, then those words do come to mind. That's part of the Spirit's work within you, working through his word. So that scripture that you've taken in is now recalled and can help and comfort you in that situation. In the face of temptation, you cannot overcome temptation without the scriptures in your heart and without knowing them. Maybe to put it into a metaphor, we, we shouldn't try to imagine that our life is just going to be like a, a pre-made pot that, you know, everything that's just, it's just going to be there and bam, we can go pick it off the shelf. But when we are in the scriptures, when we memorize them, when we read them, when we are in that wisdom, which comes from God, then we are being shaped by our master, by our father. As we continue to be shaped into the the vessel that he has created us to be, then we will find that the scriptures speak to every situation, not in a, a magical sort of way, but in the fact that we have been shaped into the image of God. I can remember reading, and I apologize, I didn't have this prepared, but some of these early martyrdom accounts, who knows? I mean, some of them may be overly elaborate, whatever. I remember them, the, whoever the persecutors are, come to these Christians and they say, give us your scriptures. And uh, so they want to take the word of God away from these people. I just remember the martyrs responding, well, I can't give you the scriptures because they are, they're written in my heart, which 
you know, we don't usually speak that way, but isn't that a great way of expressing what you guys are, are saying now? The, the more these things are internalized, the more they're read, the more they're memorized, the more they're, they're always going to be with you. And that shapes the way you think, it shapes the way you see the world, it shapes the way you live, it shapes the way you talk without even necessarily being a, well, now I'm going to have to look up Proverbs 21 verse 8 to tell my son this particular pearl of wisdom. Well, it's permeated. If it's permeated your mind, that's going to be what you communicate to your kids. Yeah, very well said. And, you know, we are at a time where the scriptures are at our fingertips. And we're in a country where, glory to God, we can have the scriptures freely in many translations. Apparently, there's not even copyright laws on some translations, right? <laughs> <laughs> some, some are free. <laughs> Free indeed. Only only on our shores, though. The Queen still holds the copyright elsewhere. And it sounds, I know, it sounds hokey to just sit there and say, well, you know, you've got the Bible and you should you should read it. But hey, guess what? You have the Bible and you should read it. And it's good. It's there for you. It's accessible. Think of the men who came before us, our fathers in the faith, and what they suffered to put the Scripture into the vernacular in the West and to put the Scripture into the hands of of the people. That's not an insignificant part of church history. And we are living in the benefit of that, the benefit of the sacrifices of those who have gone before us. And I don't say that to guilt you. Hey, you know, uh, Wycliffe, you know what happened to him, maybe, so or Tyndall, so you better read your Bible. That's not the point. The point is, God has raised you up in such a time where you have his word freely in a tongue that you can understand. And everything is a gift of God. And you know this. You know that the rain is a gift and the air you breathe is a gift. And our Lord's body and blood and the supper is a gift and baptism is a gift. But his word sitting on your shelf, too, is a gift. And it's there for you to use. He wants you to use it and he wants you to read it. And there's no shame in it. And there's certainly no harm in it. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. I mean, that that's what you're saying, Willie. And that's the way the Proverbs speak. That's the way wisdom kind of calls. It's a word fitly spoken, right? That's right. Amen. And this has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly or check us out on Twitter at WordFitly. I'm Willie Grills with Zell and Heidi and David Apple. God love you and God bless.